Perhaps now I should pause for a moment and, and maybe some of you need to leave. Maybe some of you need to get up and walk over to someone else in this very room. I would urge you to do that. This is, this is real. If you needed to leave for a moment, say, you know what? It's hypocritical for me to sit here when I've sinned against my spouse or sinned against my children or sinned against someone sitting over there or sinned against someone that I know I could go and call right now and deal with. You need to do it. The only reason that I don't need to leave the pulpit right now is I was working very hard all yesterday to try to figure out who do I need to apologize to so I don't have to leave the pulpit. I, I mean that very seriously. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 21 through 26. We'll be back in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, continuing on. I think it's been about a year. I was looking back. It seems like it's been just a moment since we started Matthew. And I was thinking, well, we'll move through Matthew in about three years. Well, if you kind of look at how that works its way out, we might not quite make it. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it has certainly been a, a joy to my own heart and challenging to me. I pray the same to you as well. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go." First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Please be seated. When I was in full-time youth ministry before going to seminary and coming here about 13 years ago now, I offended some of the parents in my congregation through some proud and insensitive behavior on my part. Several people made me aware of this, but in my own arrogance, I felt that they were the ones who were wrong and I didn't deal with the issue. After letting it fester for several years, things finally came to a head and I was forced to recognize my proud dealings with these particular group of, of parents. However, when I went to sincerely try to deal with my sin through repentance and reconciliation, what I found was that it was extremely difficult to undo the damage that my sin and the, uh, the, the passage of time without dealing with it had caused. Well, I think that perhaps some of them could have responded a little bit better. My refusal to recognize the seriousness of my sinful inattention to repentance and reconciliation was truly the core of the problem. 
And as believers, we are often quick, or we can be quick, to admit our need to worship God and to confess our sins before Him. We may also find that this is relatively easy once we have admitted our sin against Him. You see, this is because He is perfect. He has done no wrong. So we kind of innately recognize once we are willing to see our sin that before God, certainly we are guilty. Additionally, he is perfectly forgiving, and he does not roll his eyes, use annoying body language, or inappropriately bring up other areas where we failed when we bring our confession before him. Now, admitting our sins to others, however, is something very different, because they've often sinned against us. We are often slow to admit our own sin out of our anger, our pride, or maybe even the conviction that if we confess our sins to them, they will simply justify that to continue on in their own sin. Additionally, we tend not to value people or relationships very highly. And so we sin against people and we harm them, and we do not allow it to bother us very much. It is only when we learn to value people and love them with the great tenderness that God has loved them that we will be quick to deal with our sins against them, which bring such harm. And that really is what our passage is about this morning. Well, what we're going to see, we're really focusing on verses 23 to 26. We've already talked about the heart of murder and what that means. But the seriousness of our sins against others causes a a, a breach in our relationship. And and the purpose of our text this morning, the purpose of Jesus' teaching this morning, is to point out how how important it is that we deal with our, our sinful relationships with others and bring reconciliation. In fact, it is equally as important or really reflects the importance of our worship to God himself. So what we'll see is he says, you come to the the altar, and no better time to be discussing that this morning. There are no altars here this morning, but we are coming to communion to remember what Jesus has done. You come to the altar to present your offering, to confess your sin, and you've sinned against people, and you've simply let it go, says Jesus. And you haven't dealt with that particular sin. Well, that indicates that you don't value them very highly, and it indicates that you don't value your worship with God very highly as well. So what we'll see this morning is that a sin against a brother or sister in Christ is a serious matter with grave consequences, and it must be sincerely dealt with through urgent attention to repentance and reconciliation. Again, sin against a brother or sister in Christ is a serious matter with grave consequences and must be sincerely dealt with through urgent attention to repentance and reconciliation. Now, in verse 21, Jesus began with a a series of contrasts to talk about the way that the Pharisees dealt with their sin, really the way they view the law and God's commands, and the way that Jesus commands us to deal with our sin. So he, he tells them, he says, you've heard that it was said, verse 21, to the ancients, that is, it certainly was proclaimed in the Old Testament, and yet kind of reinterpreted down throughout the years as the law was reinterpreted merely externally. You shall not commit murder, and you knew that, he tells them, but really the only thing, the way you viewed that was that it's, it's external. You're, you're liable to the court. That There's a, a, a penalty that you will have to pay if you commit physical murder. But then verse 22, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So he really takes the idea of murder, moves it internally to our hearts. And again, as we mentioned, in the Old Testament, this was not foreign continually the challenge was for them to circumcise their hearts, to recognize that sin comes from within and not from without. But they had, again, chosen to interpret these passages in such a way that they said, well, we, we can obey that. We, we don't actually kill people. Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. When you have anger in your heart, it is, it is like it is the seed of the sin of murder. It doesn't have the same consequence directly in in our horizontal relationships, but it has the same consequence vertically. That is, God views it as murder. 
So we talked about the fact that we have to set aside that or we have to learn how to deal with our anger internally so that we might not commit this sin, either in its final form externally by killing someone or regularly the way we do it with our tongue, with our mouth. So we have to recognize our sinful anger. We have to imitate God's righteous anger instead. We have to obey God's word concerning that anger and then put off all the manifestations of sinful anger that we find, beginning with our motivations, beginning with our, our jealousies and lust, flowing outwards into our actual words towards other people. And I pray that you've been doing that. I pray that it has been your desire to, to look into your life, to recognize the areas where you have grown angry because you have not had your sinful lusts met. And again, remember, oftentimes it is, it is good things that we desire, but we allow that to become sinful because of our own idolatry. We respond in a sinful fashion. Well, perhaps it has been the case that you sought to do that personally. You've begun, begun to consider the nature of your anger. You've begun to, begun to work through some of those things. But it may be that there are still areas of reconciliation that are needed for you. In fact, I would say that's probably true for each of us because our anger and our sin towards others is ongoing. It is something that we renew, as it were, daily. And so as we now move to verse 23, after understanding, I hope and pray, the nature of our anger and, and, and the nature of God's view of it, that he hates, as it were, our anger, he hates our sin with a righteous hatred, and deals with us accordingly that we are guilty before him, that we would then be sure in our relationships with others that we aren't allowing either our own anger towards them to go unresolved or our sin against them, which so easily causes anger in others to go unresolved as well. It is truly a matter of love that we continually consider the nature of our relationships with others. Where are you at? And as, as we move through this discussion this morning, these principles that Jesus will lay out, I'd like you to, to be opening up the scope of your relationships. Perhaps it, it is just you and your spouse. Perhaps it's you and your children. Perhaps it's sibling to sibling. But then extending out, you had lots of time to be with your extended family, most of you, over this Christmas time. Well, how are your relationships there? How are your relationships with other members of the body? so that you would be considering the priority of repentance and reconciliation. That's A. The priority of repentance and reconciliation as it relates to our personal relationships. Verse 23, therefore, and the therefore is very important. He's just been talking about anger. He's been talking about the dangers that it has, about the, the way that God hates it, about the guilt that it brings before God himself. Ultimately, that if we don't deal with our anger, if it characterizes us, we're guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, so this is, this is a serious matter flowing right out of verse 22. Go guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, anger is a huge issue. The, the breach that it causes in, in relationships is a huge issue, and he's going to widen that out a bit, really, to any sin. Any breach in relationship is a huge issue. It is something that must be dealt with and something that has to be much higher on our priority level than it is. So therefore, relates the idea of being guilty before God for anger to the need to deal with sins that anger might cause, or again, flowing out into any sin against others that we have committed. Because we sin against others, and this is either a result of our anger or the easy cause of another's, and because anger is such a serious issue before a holy God, it behooves us to be quick to seek repentance and reconciliation with those we have sinned against. Love demands that we do not take anger and its consequences lightly. William Hendrickson says this, the word therefore shows that what the Lord is about to say follows directly from what he has just stated. It is a positive application of the rule that the heart must at all times be filled with love, not with anger and hatred. 
It also shows that loving God and therefore bringing him an offering, yet not loving the brother but remaining unreconciled to him, cannot go together. First John 4.20 says it this way, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, hatred is what? It's the reflection of the anger that we have towards them. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We're familiar with the principle. But I ask you, does it drive you in, in greater measure towards quickly dealing with the broken relationships that are in your own life, that are caused by your anger and your sin? So how are we going to do that? Well, in our text, there, there, first there's kind of an implication, and, and that is that we regularly confess our sins to the Lord. Again, drop your eyes down to verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, it's not the primary focus of the passage that the person has gone to the altar to deal with their sin, because that's why you would go. The picture is someone coming into the temple, bringing the proper sacrifice, be it a lamb for the sin offering or, or, or doves or whatever it might have been, but he's coming into the temple to worship God to deal with his sin. That's the picture. And although the emphasis of the passage focuses really not on that particular sacrifice, but on going to others, nonetheless, it is important that we regularly come to God to confess our sin. It's not minimizing that in the passage, just simply he's going to demonstrate how important it is that we deal horizontally with people as well. And so as you start this new year, as you consider the nature of your relationships with others, first and foremost, you do need to be regularly confessing your sins to the Lord. We don't come any longer to an altar where, our, where, where animals are sacrificed to cover our sin. Where do we come? We come before the throne of grace. We come to God in repentance, asking for his forgiveness, even on a daily basis, on the basis of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. But we are still to come. And we are called in Scripture to regularly come and to present our offering. It says, therefore, if you... Now, something you will not notice in your English text but that is very important in the grammar, is that Jesus has been, he's kind of expanded out, he's been using the word you in the plural sense, all of you. Now, as he gets very personal, very focused, he takes the you and it moves to a singular. So it is as though he is taking each person and bringing them before his eyes, before his gaze, and saying, you, like a little point in the chest, you, yes, all of you, but you. If you are at the altar and you recognize you have sinned against someone else, then you go. Right? So this is, this is very personal. He is, there are several commands here which heighten the intensity and urgency and the very pictures, the word pictures given, point to how important Jesus believed that this was. If you are offering or if you are presenting your offering at the altar. This was the way to deal with sin that was prescribed in the Old Testament. They weren't yet in the New Testament system. Our way to deal with sin is found in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, says John, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, this is true in a fundamental sense. So this is certainly true of unbelievers. If they don't recognize that they have sinned, they will never recognize the need for the forgiveness that God has provided, and they will never come to Christ. But this is also true for us as believers, because we have a tendency to kind of in the bigger picture sense recognize our sin. Yes, we know we're sinners, and we'll say things like, I'm just such, a, such an evil sinner, I can't do anything right, and I'll, I'll never get it right, and I'm just a mess and we kind of say that in the big picture sense, and then we ignore all the individual sins, particularly relationally, that we are committing towards one another, causing devastation in our wake, be it our marriages or other relationships, while kind of excusing it because we recognize the bigger picture nature of our sin. Even as you become a believer, it is devastating for you at some particular place in your life when you are sinning to say, I have no sin. 
And that was my issue when I was in youth work. One of the areas where I was, I was overlooking my sinfulness and my proud behavior towards other people, I was saying, I don't have any sin there. And when I said that, I was sealing myself off from what? Repentance. And I was also sealing myself off from the reconciliation necessary with those particular people. And that is what you will do. If you say that you have no sin in the bigger picture, you certainly are deceiving yourself. But you must be very careful of deceiving yourself and your relationships by saying, that's not my sin. I didn't sin. I'm not the one that did that. It's devastating. Because then you aren't going to go to God to ask for forgiveness, and that relationship is going to remain broken in the horizontal sense. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. More of us need to apply that to our regular, ongoing Christian life. Someone confronts us and says, you have sin. No, I don't. It's yours. No, I don't. You caused me to do that. No, I don't. I have an excuse. Unbelievers do it characteristically all of their lives and spend eternity in hell because they do it. Believers, when they come to Christ, should be much more quick to recognize their sinfulness. If we confess our sins, then John says, he goes on in 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that works on, that is true on the, on the most foundational level. When the, when the unbeliever recognizes his sin and turns to Christ, he's cleansed. But I think the picture in John here is, is more of a, an ongoing work where we, we have been forgiven in the bigger picture sense, all sins, past, present, and future, paid for by Christ, but that in an ongoing way, we recognize our sinfulness on the, on the horizontal plane and against the Lord, and we continue to come to Him asking for forgiveness. And He gives us what might be called that, that daily cleansing similar to what Jesus talked about when he was washing the disciples' feet. And he says, you're part of me, you're, all, you're already in me, but you need to have your, your feet washed. You need to continually be cleansed from the, from the grime of sin, which, which clogs your, your relationship with me and your relationship with others. That, that verse is bracketed then in verse 10 again. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Big picture, yes, but little picture as well. Someone takes you to Scripture, shows you principles there, and say, you've sinned. No, I haven't. What have you done? You've made God a liar. You've looked into his word. You've been shown those principles. You've refused to believe it. And you've said, God, you're a liar, and I'm right. can't tell you how many times I deal with this. Talking to people, they, they, they say, look, this, this is what's going on. I'll work through relationships. They say, look, here's the biblical principle. You're sinning. No, I'm not. There's always an excuse. You are making God a liar, and I'm doing the same. When I say, I see the principle there, I won't change, or I refuse to acknowledge it. I know the principle's true, but it doesn't apply to me because I'm not sinning. Oh, how devastating that is. You will not confess. You are essentially saying, God, you're lying when Scripture has been brought to bear. We are called to change, not to call God a liar. Hidden sin is deadly. Psalm 32, David describes the consequences of sin. David, as a believer... As someone who loved God, who was a man after God's own heart, hides his sin. And it's not like he goes, well, God, you know, ultimately God says, well, you know, in Christ, ultimately I'll be paying for all of that sin. And so, you know, I'm not going to bring to bear the consequences of your hiding your sin. You can just go on and do that, even as someone who believes in me. Absolutely not. Psalm 32, 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Something that we as believers need to take more seriously. We need to be very careful that we're constantly checking to see, have I sinned, and, and, and am I, will I go before the Lord to confess that sin? That is vital. 
Until we confess our sin, the heavy hand of God is upon us as he brings his discipline to bear. But when we repent of it, we confess and forsake our sin, we find the warmth of his compassion. Remember, this is in familiar terms, as father to children, not in the bigger picture sense, if you're a believer of God, withholding his blessing from you in Christ. No, you yet have his grace. He, you, he is yet favorably disposed towards you in Christ. But his compassion, his, his fatherly and familial relationship towards you is one of, of discipline when you are refusing to confess your sin. Psalm 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. That's not only true before God, that's also true before others. And now we'll turn the corner a bit. I've focused a bit in, in the implication of the text. Now I want to focus on the primary purpose of the text. Because he says this, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, picturing someone going to God, worshiping God, saying, I've sinned God before you, I want to deal with that. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. So you are to go, you are to regularly confess to God. But there, and as you do that, if, if you will allow your regular confession to God to then cause you to try to bring to mind areas where you might have sinned against others, then you will have effective repentance. Remember, number two here, your sin against others. While you are in the act of worshiping, all this is very present tense. There's a picture of the person he comes. He's, he's about to bring, you know, he's giving his offering. He's, he's offering it to the priest to say, look, sacrifice this for my sin. As he starts to do that into his mind, comes this sin that he's committed against someone else. Right? And, and my prayer is right, that you wouldn't, it wouldn't just be, it pops into your mind. Certainly the Holy Spirit will, will grant grace in bringing these things to mind. But you are supposed to bring it back before your mind. Remember for you and remember for us should be a carefully uh, pursued act. Not just, oh, oh yeah, I remember I sinned against that person. No, but, but thinking through in our consciences, as we go to the Lord to confess our sin, have we sinned against someone else? And then if we remember that our brother has something against us, that is, we have truly sinned. I think that's the implication in both of these illustrations. There's a real sin on our part. We have violated our relationship through a sinful act of some kind. And again, seemingly related to anger in our particular text. If you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering or leave the altar and go. Leave your offering before the altar. Anytime we are getting ready to confess our sins before the Lord, we should be thinking back carefully over our life, our day, to see if we've sinned against someone we have not sought forgiveness from. Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Again, not only before the Lord, but certainly before others, because any sin, obviously, against others is a sin against God as well. A tender conscience is necessary for us if we are going to truly confess our sins and recognize and remember our sins against others. A tender conscience will not allow us to go hypocritically worshiping God, asking his cleansing from sin when we have not dealt with our specific sins against others. Very, very fascinating. Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says this, in view of this, the nature of the gospel as he was presenting, he was giving his testimony. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. It is not sufficient to say, well, I dealt with that before the Lord. 
I know, I know I sinned and I'm, I'm proud or well, I'm, I was angry, whatever I mean. And me and God, we've dealt with that. And you've refused to have a clear conscience before men. That is the horizontal relationships. As you think through them, you have dealt with your sin. And who of us haven't sinned against someone daily? It would be pretty rare. In fact, I think almost impossible with the amount of time that we spend around others. Certainly our family, but also members of the body of Christ, people at work, other places. Craig Bonberg says of this, they has something against you most likely implies a just claim. And it suggests that we ought not to bring up our grievances with others that they do not yet know about, but that we deal with the situations in which others remain upset with us. That is, you're, you're at the altar and you're like, well, I wonder if, if he knows about the sin. Well, I'll go and find out. Now, the issue is, first and foremost, I know I have sinned. Areas where it is clear that you have had a breach of relationship. And how many of our churches would be temporarily emptied if these commands were taken seriously, says Womber. So we are to remember our sins against others. Are you quick to do that? Or are you quick to be defensive? And I know perhaps some of you are sitting off, yes, I am. I, I recognize my sins against others. And I, I believe that, that you, you do and that that's your desire. But I ask you, how defensive do you get when your spouse brings up your sin of yesterday or last night or this morning? Are you quick to say, oh, you're right. Or are you quick to say, not my fault. I was tired. You forced me into that. How quick are we to be defensive when it comes to our relationships with others and the sins that we've committed against them? Usually it is it, our, our defensiveness is in proportion to the closeness of their relationship with us. The closer they are to us, the more defensive we tend to be. And so I would ask you as you sit here this morning, as you sit here offering bringing your offering to God, not an altar, but coming and sitting and, and worshiping him and offering up your mind and heart to the Lord. Perhaps now I should pause for a moment and, and maybe some of you need to leave. Maybe some of you need to get up and walk over to someone else in this very room. I would urge you to do that. This is, this is real. If you needed to leave for a moment, say, you know what? It's hypocritical for me to sit here when I've sinned against my spouse or sinned against my children or sinned against someone sitting over there or sinned against someone that I know I could go and call right now and deal with. You need to do it. The only reason that I don't need to leave the pulpit right now is I was working very hard all yesterday to try to figure out who do I need to apologize to so I don't have to leave the pulpit. I, I mean that very seriously. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically 
work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.